Welcome back, everyone, to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. Today, we bring back Jim Campbell for round two. If you listened to our first interview last year, it was one of the most listened to episodes ever on this podcast. You might recall we were discussing his new book, Madoff Talks, which has since been turned into a hit Netflix docuseries called Madoff the Monster of Wall Street. If you haven't watched it yet, go see it. That's all I can say. Awesome show and a story that is just hard to believe. Now, last time Jim and I spoke, we were discussing how such an unthinkable scam like Madoff can possibly happen. And then, bam, as fate would have it, it happens all over again. Just in November of 2022, shortly after that first interview, the largest crypto exchange, FTX, which was valued at $32 billion, went belly up. In today's episode, we're going to compare how Madoff's $65 billion Ponzi scheme, which collapsed in 2008, has so many parallels to Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, in his $32 billion debacle. Now, you'll notice we do get into the weeds on some of this. When billions of dollars are moving around, it can get quite complicated. So I'd suggest just going back to read Jim's book, Madoff Talks, or check out the Netflix documentary, and you should be able to follow this conversation pretty closely. Lastly, I just want to remind everybody, a little shameless plug, my new book comes out one week from today, on February 7th, titled, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. And without giving away any of the secret sauce, I just want to mention that one of the recurring themes throughout my book are the motives behind economic behavior and investment decision-making. It is these motives that are ultimately how stories like Madoff and FTX can continue to happen and how unknowing investors can allow themselves to get swindled. So I won't say any more, but please go pre-order a copy or next week you can grab it on shelves wherever books are sold and let me know what you think about it. Without further ado, here's Jim Campbell is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change the only constant. Podcast. Jim, welcome back to the show. Brian, it's my honor to be back for part two. And let me first congratulate you on uh, your book. I know you just got the uh, first... Uh, hard covers from McGraw Hill and they it is a beautiful cover they're my publisher too and I love their cover too so the best of luck on that thanks so much Jimmy I'm excited for it that's uh coming out just a week away I can't believe it so what was that like working with uh Netflix to kind of turn your book into yeah. you know primetime TV I have to say first of all they treated me really well and even the backstory is amazing because um, if you may remember Bernie died right before my book came out which is what raised exposure to it and so um, the, the Sunday before the Tuesday when it came out is the CBS Sunday morning interview, right? So that drove all this demand. Four production companies came to ask if they could option the rights for the documentary. And I was hoping for a documentary, you know, two years or something down the road as a dream. This is before the book is out now because of the, you know, Bernie dying and the press off of it. And um, so it's decided that I need to get an agent at, and it got one at CAA, which is the big Hollywood one. And she immediately said, 
we're, we're skipping the production companies because the way these things work, the production company comes to you, they try to get a deal optioning the book, and then they go to find a streamer or a studio to fund it. Okay. Netflix okay. says you've got these four offers from touch. We're skipping. No, I'm sorry. You've got four offers from production companies. We're going to skip them and we're going to go right to Netflix, which is very unusual. So then they hmm. negotiated a contract with Netflix and she told me we'll get you the best deal and the best director. And they got Joe Berlinger, who is the top Netflix uh, crime uh, documentarian filmmaker. He's done Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Ted Bundy, Whitey Bulger, um, and a bunch of others and a super nice guy. And um, and that's how it happened. And then, you know, I come in as kind of like, uh, after that, a, a consultant, right? And none of them had any finance background. In fact, um, Joe only had really just serial killers and kind of stuff. So I spent like three months, part of each week, working with them and their team, the producers, okay? Then there's mm -hmm. filming for like four or five months, of which I was in the studio in Jersey three times for 10 hours. And and then Netflix takes it for four months, which they localize it for all the countries, whatever that means, possibly uh, captions and whatever. Uh, yeah. And then it came out January 4th. And again, remember, you heard Bernie died right before that. Well, SBF went down right before this. And it's great. <laughs> everybody's watching, you know, say, oh, my God, you know, it's great timing. It, it really is the timing. You couldn't have drawn it up any better. Let me How is you, it? Uh... Let me tell you one other thing that, that blew me away is uh, and you know we're in the book business trying to sell a few thousand books right um while joe first of all joe this big huge guy it's the zoom era and i meet with their development team and joe right and so i'm saying like i should be on my knees you know can you you know <laughs> before i speak he says jim they've told me i have to have this book what do we need to do and i'm like holy cow but then he tells me his documentaries, and this one will be watched by 150 million people in the first 28 days. Yeah, Man, talk about an audience. That is, yeah, that is insane. It's just crazy how fast it all can happen, too. It's a, uh, and I've been watching the documentary, which they did a, a awesome job with it. With it's, it's entertaining, and you're also able to digest all that information and kind of the yeah. whole storyline. When you started to collaborate with them, I know it wasn't just your voice there's some other people on there that are providing their yes. you know anecdotal evidence and whatnot did you kind of have any like aha moments of sort where you're like i never knew that or that was different than the story i was told was there any kind of things kind of coming to the surface amongst these different people that got inside with bernie madoff that's a really good question um not really the the thing that um and I shouldn't say this because it's kind of obnoxious, but I know the story well, right? And some of the other people that were reporting it, if you will, like I was, their facts were a little bit off. Not exactly, you know, and it was fine. It didn't change the story at all in any way. But I knew that it wasn't exactly, uh, exactly the, you know, the way it was. But yep. it, it's a tremendous job. And, it, and Diana Enriquez wrote The Wizard of Lies which is the first book right after Bernie's arrested. She was big New York Times. She's she's in it, and she's very yep. good. She's got kind of that folksy demeanor, and um, uh, she's great. Andrew Ross Sorkin is from the New York Times, and he's and Squawk Box on uh, CNBC, and he's so well-regarded that he's in as kind of like the industry, you know, girl that everybody's heard of. If you look at others, there's a documentary on Carl Icahn or whatever. He tends to be in them. And mm -hmm. he was also really good. 
um, and also involved with FTX. You know, he had uh, SBF at his conference for DealBook. Um, so, um, it, you know, basically, basically, no. And th- let me tell you the thing that means the most to me of what Joe did is I worried, of course, this would be Hollywoodized, tablo- tabloidized, right? And yeah. as you know from my book, my big thing was I wanted to tell the overall architecture, the failure of the feeders, SIPC, SEC, JP Morgan, that's really complex. And that's beyond mm-hmm. the sex of Bernie, right? Which is everybody thinks that that's the, the thing. And so I worried they're not going to be able to digest all that. And if you look at those four episodes, right, it is hugely fact-based and there's just a ton of stuff in there. And I get the same thing I always get from my book. I didn't know this story. I didn't know all this, you know, yeah. and I got to give Joe all the credit for that to figure out how to do that in a way that's entertaining, Sure. It, I think it's just naturally entertaining. Like they say, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. It's, yeah. I mean, you right. hear the facts, you hear the stories and it's like, no, like the, that can't be, yeah. but it's like one after the other <laughs> that, that whole chain of events is just incredible. And one of the things, and I want to get to FDX and some of the things that are happening, you know, okay. right here now in 2023. Okay. But last night I was actually finishing the second episode of the the documentary and, uh, you know, I was hearing about how Barron's did the spotlight on Bernie yep. Madoff before yep. he was so famous. Yep. And, you know, the the whole theme of it was just how secretive he was and that even clients weren't allowed to say a word about how Bernie operated. Yep. So you kind of saw how he was always able to kind of dodge and, and have these kind of near falls. And and there was the insight on, I think it was Pick Hour that was like the top client that was constantly putting billions in and out of the fund yep. and was yep. able to kind of extort him. Yep. The thing... I, it was like you had all these like, OK, I, I'm starting to understand how this was able to kind of keep on going. But one question I had is like, where was all the actual money? Where was Bernie's own billions and where was, yeah. you know, his hedge funds billions? Yeah. Um, first off, that's a red flag right there. That they, they were, There was no uh, Bernie and uh, hedge fund. It was all in a 703 account at J.P. Morgan, which literally was a, basically a checking account. And he commingled all of his clients' money with uh, his money in the investment advisory business, right? And that, they, they just used it like like a, a piggy bank. In fact, um, I have to, and, and we can go through how they missed it. But um, um, I have to tell you, by the way, first off, you, you watched ex, um, episode two. I watched yeah. it in the theater on Sunday, right? And it's okay. only the second time I've seen it. So I missed a lot the first time because you tend <laughs> to look at when you're on and stuff. And I didn't realize I end the second episode when I and it with with um, Bernie had escaped again narrowly for now. And then it ends, which I thought was really yeah. cool. I didn't even notice that the first time. Um, now I lost my train of thought on um, like hour. where. Well, no, where all the money was being held like oh. that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's go back to let's go back to that. Um, so Bernie supposedly got sixty-five billion bucks, right, uh, mm-hmm. out in the in the market in that seven hundred three account in in cash, and he was always in cash at the quarter end, so he wouldn't have to reveal the portfolio. He told me the most he ever had in that account was five point nine billion dollars. So if you looked in there, and by the way, which is a huge number for a checking account, but yeah. if, you, if you look at that, that was the most you would ever seen it. And then it got as low as like 13, 14 million back in, in the 90, early 90s before it boomed that he had no cash and he almost got caught, uh, you know, bailed out by guys like Pickhauer. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was in that account. And I was going to, this is the other thing I was going to add. So 
it premieres on January the 4th, right? On January the 5th, Jamie Dimon calls me. <laughs> the CEO of J.P. Morgan. Wow. Um, and uh, I couldn't have been a nicer guy. He wanted to bring up a few issues that he had. But it was funny, Ryan, because um, about 30 seconds into the call, and this is really rude, I started interrupting him because I just knew the facts better. After a minute, he gives up, <laughs> starts asking me questions. Oh, my gosh. So, and that was kind of what I was getting at is whoever was holding that money, which I guess it was J.P. Morgan Chase had this yeah. checking account that was this huge slush fund. Wasn't there some point somebody there, someone in their compliance department had to say this account looks a little odd the way that it operates? You know, it's a great point because, first of all, they have volume controls, right? So if, if an account is normally doing 20 million a day and suddenly there's a spike to 70 million, it kicks out a report, right? So that somebody at J.P. Morgan can theoretically, you know, say, why, why did that happen? And of course, Bernie's was going like this. Um, mm -hmm. The second thing was that, that they have you have to have a KYC officer, as you know, know your know your customer. So sure. if, you're a, if you're a drug lord, my job to know that, you know, you shouldn't be having that account there. The KYC officer at J.P. Morgan and the account was there for 40 years, one month before it went down November of 2008, thought it was the market maker account. Didn't even know that it was the uh, Ponzi account. The other thing that J.P. Morgan blew, and there's a whole series of what they blew, but but two other big things was you're an equity strategy, right? The split strike conversion supposed to mirror index. Um, you've got to have in that account counterparty payments and receipts, right? Because you have to be trading with someone. Secondly, as a part of an uh, equity strategy, you've got to have dividends coming in. Should have had 4.4 billion dividends, in fact. There was never a single payment to any counterparty and never a single dollar deposit of any um any dividend so you had spikes in volume they didn't know what the account was there were six billion in the checking account at, at peak and then you had these other huge red flags that there was no sign of any trading that's it's mind-boggling and i feel like just at least my memory of that era around 2008 2009 you heard about bernie you heard about the investors with Bernie. You heard about, you know, the accounting misses, you know, yeah. where were the regulatory bodies? I just don't remember hearing that much about the bank, about Chase and, and that they kind of held the money the, the entire time. And it That's was almost funny. like, how could they not know? It's funny that you uh, you say that because um, um, the bankruptcy trustee, Picard, went after, tried to go after J.P. Morgan for $19 billion. The court threw it out because they said you only have jurisdiction over individuals. The DOJ, Southern District of New York, went after them and got them to sign a $2.5 billion, much better deal, um, mm -hmm. non-prosecution agreement. Okay, But they missed other ways. They were doing a business in the UK and it's complex deals with Madoff synthetics, which we, if you want to talk about. But they had money in the FEMA fund which was Sonia Cohn, big money, a big feeder, full of bad dudes' money, okay? Um, oligarchs, drug lords. And the, when J.P. Morgan spelled the rat, they tried to get that money out of there. Colombian drug lords threatened J.P. Morgan. And that's when J.P. Morgan went to the U.K. regulatory authority. But they didn't go to the U.S., nor did they warn the divisions that private wealth, for instance, that had made off uh, investors in it, and nor did they go look at the checking account and do some due diligence. So it was a, it was a complete screw up by J.P. Morgan. 
And so fast forward to, you know, today and, and all of a sudden you have probably the biggest name in all of finance, Jamie Dimon reaching out to you. Yeah. How does that conversation go in, in light of what you just described? Yeah. Like, you know, was he kind of hat in hand? We missed all this or was he trying to defend the company? Like what was his kind of just if you can give us insight to that conversation? Yeah. I'll, I'll try not to violate his privacy too much. Um which I already think I did in an interview with Cindy Adams. So I'm trying to be careful this time. Um, sure. He had, he had the issues that he raised. And by the way, they were really, frankly, pretty small issues. Um, and then, as I said, I interrupted him and um, he started asking me questions. And I'll tell you one thing he asked about, because um, it is pretty scandalous. He said he'd heard rumors uh, about the custodianship of HS, um, interna an international bank. OK. Mm -hmm. And I said, yep, this is the story. And I told it to Jamie. Uh, HSBC. Remember, we just mentioned the theme of fun. That's Sonia, right? Well, a lot of the investors were told or felt that HSBC was had custody of her assets that were going into Madoff, right? Just the way it's supposed to be, right? Except that Bernie didn't allow custodians. Here's what happened. HSBC delegated sub-custodianship to a bank in the islands off the U.S., who in turn, under the table, delegated sub-custodianship, guess where, back to Bernie. So HSBC wasn't holding it, was kind of misrepresenting it, if anything. And Jamie had heard rumors of that. So I took him through that whole story. Um, and by the way, the next day I, I sent an email, I apologize because I felt I interrupted him a lot. He said, no, it was a great conversation. So I guess, and he said, you know, he's that kind of guy, he's a blunt guy. And we were going yeah. back and forth and interrupting each other. And he did make a comment on missing it that I'll, I'll keep private. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. Do you think it, not to belabor the point on that one, but do you think somebody at the, the highest level, you know, the, the CEO of just one of the biggest companies in the world, are they privy to to that sort of thing? Or do they only hear about it once yes. it's too late? And it's like, hey, boss, we got a really, really big problem. That's a real that's a really good question. Um, part of the, 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 the language that, that Jamie used and um, uh, the, the epitaphs that sort of relate to not finding it. But um, the answer to that is that and this is another nice thing about Jamie. Uh, I don't know if you know, he had an aortic dissection and almost died, right? It happened to be coincidentally the same time that I was looking into JP Morgan, right? And they screwed up in all these different ways. And I asked Jamie, would you let me talk to your people? Expecting he would say no. And he's also, you know, not even at work. And he let me do it. Um, Sipic, who was supposed to be the big heroes, um, who I go after a bit. Uh, wouldn't let me, you know, they got all the money back. They, they wouldn't let me talk to them. But anyway, mm. it comes down to the fact that J.P. Morgan was either willfully blind in a criminal sense, right? Because, you know, I go through, they missed in three different ways, six different divisions. You just heard some of the ones. Um, but the fact that he let me talk to his people really was key because what came out of this is they didn't have the systems in place to horizontally send information in other words that uk thing saw something that looked weird there were some people in private wealth who thought something the returns looked uh, too good to be true they had the 703 account and they just couldn't cross the data and so they missed it the other thing that you go back to that perspective 
From this side, it looks like a huge, massive Ponzi scheme. From inside J.P. Morgan, Bernie looked like he was running basically. They they were they had they were running. Um, uh, they knew he was a market maker and everything, right? And he was in mm -hmm. that broker dealer division for. And so they and they knew he was a big guy, but he wasn't using a lot of the bank services in their eyes. It was a, fundamentally a checking account, right? And he had yep. periodic loans. So they're focusing on Merrill Lynch and guys that are you know using huge um, uh, resources of of. of um, of J.P. Morgan and, and Bernie didn't look like that to them. Now, ironically, over that 40 year period, he, he paid them 500 million bucks of fees. Um, and so it didn't wasn't a good investment by the time they paid the two billion dollar fine. Yeah, but so. um, the yeah. answer, the answer is there are so many red flags. The KYC officer's job was to know there were six divisions. The UK smells something. And by the way, even worse, when they're doing these made off synthetics, uh, UK says we want to do due diligence with Bernie, right? That's kind of natural, right? That's what the feeders mm -hmm. were supposed to be doing. Bernie wouldn't allow them to do due diligence, okay? Well, you think that's a bit of a red flag? And they did think it was a bit of a red flag. One of the guys who rose to be the chief operating officer uh, said there's rumors that Bernie's a scam or that he's a Ponzi scheme. Um, call, you know, let, let make sure we call his uh, accountant and find out, make sure it's not a car wash because his accountant was a one-man firm in a strip mall in New City. So they smelled stuff. They knew that Bernie was doing illegal check hiding with one of the big four, Norm Levy, who was a big J.P. Morgan client. And uh, I don't know if you need any more. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's crazy. As you just kind of list those really quickly, and I know that the, the show and your book do it in much more detail. It's almost frustrating in a sense because you're you're sitting there, you're either reading it or you're sitting there watching the show. And it's like, how, how, like, how is this happening? It happens again and again and again. And it went on for just such a long period um, that it almost seems impossible, but it's like, it obviously it wasn't, it, it went on for such a period of time. Um, and with people that you think that these have got to be the most sophisticated people in finance, when you're talking about billion dollar investors yep. and uh, it's just hard to believe it's, and that's why I say fact is strange. And I, think your, I think your point that, you know, the book and the documentary go through all this. I think part of what Jamie said was he's watching all of this and saying, oh my God, right? Because he's not seeing it in the whole picture. And, and remember, this is back now 14 years ago. And when, you, when I say I knew more than him, that doesn't mean anything more than he has a big job, right? He's overseeing yeah. all of J.P. Morgan. So, you know, being an expert on Madoff 14 years later, and I'm sure watching it, um, and of course, he wanted to get in his his digs, you know, uh, as to yeah, yeah. why they missed it. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, quite a case study for history. And I think, like we said, the timing could not be better. We You release that, everybody gets, you know, kind of a, a reawakening of how Madoff happened. And then, bang, FDX happens. And it's like deja vu all over again. And, and just for some people that haven't kept up with the headlines, again, FTX was this huge crypto exchange back in November, as early as, uh, or I should say, as late as November of 2022, valued at about $32 billion, yep. and then in a couple of weeks, bankrupt. So was this one, just to go to FTX now, modern times, was this more like Bernie again, or was this more like kind of like a Lehman type of collapse? The answer to that is both, and throw in Enron too. But let's start with Bernie, because um, I, I find some interesting parallels. First off, you know Bernie built this huge reputation on Wall Street, architected the NASDAQ, was chairman of the NASDAQ, regulators loved him, total trust, right? 
And his legitimate market-making business was legitimate. So he had that reputation, and it was an affinity crime, right, with the Jewish community totally trusted him, 85% of the victims and charities Jewish. They called him the Jewish T-bill. He was as safe as the government bonds. Um, and um, so he has this. Now let's go over to SBF. Most crypto guys want no regulation, right? He was saying we need regulation. He had um, had this altruistic philosophy. He had cultivated celebrities. He paid celebrities. He gave 73 million bucks to uh, Washington politicians. He had CFTC, which is the regulatory agency for crypto, even though there's no real regulatory agency. Um, he had some of them on the payroll. So look at him. He's suddenly built the same trust and he's got this good guy image, right? Yep. Now, the second thing is, what about remorse, right? So <clears throat> Ernie, we know the lack of empathy, the sociopathic indicators, et cetera, uh, blaming his victims. Now let's go to SBF. His story, my dog ate the homework. Your dog ate the homework. $32 billion fund vaporized, no controls, and you say you know nothing about it. Uh, Alameda, 90% owned by him, um, doing risky bets, collateralizing, co-mingling customer money. That's Bernie, co-mingling. A big no-no on Wall Street. You don't know that's going on. It's $8 bucks. Let me tell you how smart that dog was. The, it's been the allegations uh, in the uh, uh, SEC claim. He's, he borrowed 1.8 billion. Uh, he used 1.8 billion of that eight uh, eight billion. They moved over for collateral for his personal purchases. Right, he put money into uh, private firms, to, into 400 million into hedge funds, bought real estate. So he was using that as collateral. Right. Well, he had the system programmed not to charge him interest. So you tell me how a dog does that. And there's a lot mm -hmm. of other things. Now Lehman, uh, Lehman went down right because. They had a lot illiquid assets, mainly real estate assets that were funded by overnight repos, right? And if the repo market shuts, you have no cash, boom, you're out of business, okay? Here we have um, FTX dependent on the FTT currency, which is the FTT token in the FTX exchange. They had to keep that um, value constant, right? Because uh, if it suddenly sunk, all the collateral is in big trouble. So right away, a Ponzi scheme means no real investment activity. So he wasn't running a Ponzi scheme. But if you look that there might have been market manipulation going on to keep the FTT token, and there's evidence of that, you, that's market manipulation, right, which is Enron. Um, and so Jeez. it doesn't look, it doesn't smell very good. And um, uh, you look at, uh, so anyway, with Lehman, so Lehman has a cash crunch and has to go down, right? Um, same thing happens to FTX. The self-dealing between Alameda and FTX, the excessive debt, right? And yep. um, the basically trying to hide stuff by having a hundred subsidiaries. Which, that's Enron. See, Bernie only had one firm. His mistake was having not having the investment advisory to separate firms, so he couldn't sell the one that was uh, legitimate. So, you know, I see these links like Bernie, um, these links like, like Lehman, these links like Enron, and that's hmm. a whole lot for a guy who said the dog ate the homework. That's a lot more than Bernie pulled off. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing is it seemed like it just happened so quick because just to bring some of the listeners up to speed, again, SBF is Sam Bankman-Fried. He's yeah. the, the founder of FTX, which is the crypto exchange. And then you mentioned uh, Alameda Research, which was uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's hedge fund. Yes. So that was one thing that kind of caught my eyes. I know you talk a lot about with Bernie 
it's like he had two operations. And in the the documentary, they always talk about, I think, the 19th floor and the 17th floor. And that one was legitimate. And then the other was the Ponzi scheme. And it kind of, you know, clicked in my head again that Sam Bankman Freed or SBF as he goes by, he had the hedge fund first. Now, was that a legitimate operation before this, you know, exchange kind of went off the rails? Um, That's a good question. Um, The only thing that I would say there, if if you're separating it out, right, and saying, was it legitimate? Let's go back a layer then. There's a big similar failure, due diligence. In Bernie, it was the feeder funds, right? Yeah. Here, you've got SoftBank, you've got Sequoia, you've got BlackRock. They're throwing money at them, right? So, and investing, right, in the in the platform FTX. And um, I don't know if it was in Alameda as well, too, but it could be that before he co-mingled everything, all that money they were throwing at him, he was using some of that, um, you know, to invest in these other entities, right? He was buying other, there were a hundred entities in this whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, I, I personally, there's no regulation there, right? So when you start co-mingling to use as collateral, that's completely illegal on Wall Street. In that yeah. world, is there a way to put someone in jail for that? I don't, I don't know, but it's, I mean, he did it and that's why it blew up, right? Because as soon as the um, collateral value goes down, there's a call on that. Everybody panics, right? Yep. They all want their money back. And that's exactly uh, what happened here. But you had that due diligence. These are big institutional investors. They couldn't have done any due diligence because there was nothing there. No controls. He was apparently running it on QuickBooks. You know, it's a $32 billion enterprise. Yeah. And again, it's just kind of mind boggling as you you play it out here. But one of the things, just to clarify, and I know that you haven't probably researched this nearly as much as you did, right. Bernie, but FTT was the native yes. coin for FTX. So that was like the cryptocurrency. That yes. was, the, from my understanding, the main asset in the collateral that was used in FTX. Right. So when people are investing, they're doing these these kind of rounds, rounds of uh, you know crowdfunding of sorts where they're getting you know, $400 million coming into FTX. Is it going straight into FTT? Like, is that is he essentially converting dollars into his coin? Is that uh, what was happening? I think I think to a great extent. And there, there, by the way, is where that self dealing also comes in that I talk about between Alameda, right? Because you have a fundamental conflict. You've taken all this money of customers, uh, which is being stabilized by the FTT currency, right? That the FT that currency, if it collapses, all all the customer money, right? goes down the tubes and he's got all these loans and um, investments off of collateralizing stuff that has to stay stable. And that's why market manipulation to me uh, mm-hmm. becomes a, a big thing. And by the way, after the crash, the FTT currency, which had been made stable, I think partly artificially because they manipulated the supply of it through Alameda, um, mm-hmm. it crashed 96%. It's insane. It's just unbelievable. It is. It's literally and, insane. Yeah. And so, and just to kind of bring again, people up to speed is some of the inner workings of how it went from $32 billion to zero, you know, literally like in, in days. So at the beginning of November, 2022, I believe it was Binance that sold $530 million of FTT. And when they did that, that kind of, it looks like it just triggered almost a bank run where- yeah. Everybody said, okay, we want out. And that's when he had that kind of come to Jesus moment of, well, it's not here. It's, it doesn't exist. 
Um, kind of like 2008 prompted everybody to call Bernie and say, we want our cash yeah. back. And he said, well, it doesn't exist. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's so hard to wrap your head around. Like these institutions, obviously they don't do the due diligence. I right. see it as a, a financial advisor and being securities licensed, like the amount of hoops we have to go through just to talk about, let alone do anything crypto. Where was it that these, these big institutions were able to say, okay, we'll throw a hundred million at this. No problem. You know, we like this crypto idea. And by the way, on the Binance thing, um, they, they 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 sold that share, which, you know, knocked the floor out. But I think what was as pivotal is they were looking to buy FTX, right? And they suddenly saw that the like instant due diligence that there was no there there. And when they pulled out of that deal, I think that's what that's what resulted in. Oh, my God, there's no confidence anymore. And by the way, I use this in. Um, crypto is essentially a confidence game, right? If there's no confidence, those tokens go down to zero. And con is part of confidence. So part of crypto is really a big con if you get to it. Now, why? Yeah. Um, you know, when there, I, there's just too much money sometimes um, that the institutional guys have to invest, right? Because I, you and I wouldn't throw 400 million at something that we can't even look at, you know, yeah. it's unregulated. Um, and they were just showering with with money. Now, I I don't know if they've alleged that he stole any personally as opposed to collateralized. But I look at the numbers: seventy three million to politicians, three hundred million of real estate with his parents, two hundred million investments in these other um, in other um, funds and stuff that um, other crypto entities, right? And then four hundred million in two hedge funds. Where is that? Where is that coming from? That he had that kind of money, you know? Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to get to, too, is like you look at who was hurt in the Madoff, you know, incident. It was everything from, you know, hedge funds to pension funds to just individuals that were extremely wealthy. And I like that that you pointed out, because that's kind of the conclusion I was drawing is now here we are with FTX. You say, where is he raising 300, 400 million dollars at a clip? And is it there are these other institutions that have billions where a hundred million to them is, yeah, we'll give it a try. You know, it's, it's, and then you add a few hundred million here and there and it becomes billions, of course. Yeah. So that makes sense. But I guess the point that I want to get to Bernie hit everybody from hedge funds, pension funds to wealthy people. Did FTX, who was harmed in it? Was it big institutions that said, oh, well, we lost a hundred million. We're gigantic. That's okay. Or were there individuals in this that took a bath? Well, you got it. Yeah, the 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 um, institution showered them with the hundreds of millions that we talked about. But remember, the folks that are on um, uh, that are on that exchange, a lot of them are these guys in their basement, right? Trying to you know make think they're going to make money uh, in cryptos. He has one million creditors. Um, Eight billion was commingled, moved over, and of that, three billion is unaccountable for this lost, right? So you know, it's not like sixty-five billion of uh, of Bernie's um, of Bernie's Ponzi, but the thirty-two billion was the asset value that people had thought they had in the uh, entity itself. And by the way, with Bernie too, um, some of those individual investors were not wealthy; they were actually rather middle-class people who put little money with them over those 40 years, right? So by the time they're done, they have a nest egg of three, four, five million bucks. And they, they're the ones that uh, they got wiped out um, really badly. Um, so um, there, there's, you know, there's a lot of normal people, I would bet, whose money is is in there too. Now, the, the, the trustee they put in, um, the CEO, is saying that they might be able to get $5 billion back 
um, although certainly not at the deflated values right now. But so they, they, they think they might, you know, get to recoup some, but uh, mm -hmm. it's purely, purely speculative uh, right yeah. now. And, and, you know, we, you, you made a good point that, well, I'm putting, I'm BlackRock, I put a hundred million in. That's like a little bit of a bet, right? But the yeah. part I don't get is, so go make your little bet. Why wouldn't you do any due diligence? Why would you just say, and is it just because this guy has such a great image and he's cultivating Andrew Ross Sorkin? The guy's doing interviews after the thing collapsed, right? Now, normally, yeah. if you run out of town and you're going to jail, you're not talking to people. Your lawyers are, you know, telling you, and he's talking to everybody. So yeah. maybe he exploited just like Bernie exploited this trust. Yeah, no, it is weird. And just to kind of draw one more parallel. So with, and if you can kind of summarize so Bernie's taken in all this money at the peak. You said, you know, his funds worth about or the Ponzi scheme's worth about 65 billion yeah. and he never placed a single trade. Where did that money go? Was that kind of paying people that were redeeming along the way? He's spending it on yachts and mansions and yeah. private art. You know, where, where did that actual money go? Yeah. First off, the way a Ponzi scheme works, right, is uh, there's no real investment activity. So the returns that you're getting are from me coming in the door, right? Takes my money and it gives you the return, right? So you always need more people coming in the front door with money that are going out the back door redeeming their money, right? And that's why they don't tend to last because it's impossible to do that. But he got it to do it because he he was he had wealthy guys and he was there for 40 years. So where's that money going? And the, the way I broke it down uh, is in three ways. One, you know the big four, right? The, those kinds of guys. Um, it was a reverse Robin Hood in the sense that I just told you there were some not that wealthy guys. He's giving those guys fake returns of, let's say, 11, 12. And he was giving the big four guys 40 percent. So he's essentially taking money from them and giving it to them. OK. Mm -hmm. and, and and other redemptions that are, you know, guys who, who are it's their really their money. The second box um, I, I put into was when BLMS, his Bernie's company in the market making business, when it had trouble uh, troubles, he basically laundered 800 million bucks from the 17th to the back door of the 19th and put it on the trading P&Ls hidden, right? So that's 800 million. You know, Picower alone took out 7 billion and that's going in and out because funds are, you know, going both ways. Let me give you an yeah. example. Fairfield Greenwich is the biggest hedge fund that was in there, right? Yeah. At one point, at one point, and you talk about they get it, they got used too. At one point, Picower's taking out money, sometimes a billion a year, at one point, the money that Fairfield was bringing in, and they put in $16 billion over the years, the money that Fairfield was bringing in at the time was going right to Pickhauer out the back door. So the second one is to prop up the, the business. The third one is what I call the piggy bank, which you mentioned, buying yachts for the people that were involved on the 17th floor, Frank Pascali, the right-hand man, buying yep. the houses, basically using the money of, for the within the firm, he, you know his his haunt shows on the 18th floor. Those high school graduates, uh, house in Jersey, vacations. They were just dipping into that. Uh, so it was used as a piggy bank, bank up the firm, and for the reverse Ponzi and redemption. Got it. So safe to say, at least what Bernie Madoff did, he had this gigantic slush fund, mostly yep. with I guess J.P. Morgan Chase and this yep. enormous checking account. That served no other purpose than to go in and go out and, and hopefully exactly. grow over time with more coming in than going out. You know how much and, money went through that account? Talking about J.P. Morgan missing it. Over the course of those years, $170 billion went in and out of his account. Wow. It's incredible. And then just along the way, him and his minions kind of take off you know, their, their yep. riches to enjoy. Yep. 
Okay, so that makes that makes sense. So there wasn't with Madoff. There was not a point where he said, "Man, I am taking in a tremendous amount of money. Let me try and do something to at least grow this organically with any sort of investment." Or it was just like, "There's no chance I could keep up. We're just gonna con Actually, it the whole way through." Yeah, this is the most unfathomable part because you know Bernie has a legitimate business, um, and so. What happened? And obviously you're going to think like a gambler, he did something and he lost some money. So rather than do the right thing, I'm going to under the table, run a little Ponzi. We'll get the money back like, like a gambler doubles down and no one will ever notice. And he told me that story, very complex. And it turns out it was all BS. He was actually running them side by side. But the market maker was a commission-based business, right? So he, at that point, he had leading edge technology, high quality staff kept his costs low, and he made money whether the market's up or down on commissions. He does some money. He takes twenty about 24 clients, friends and family, and starts off doing a little stuff on the hedge fund side. And he suddenly saw he could, make, he could have losses, and he could not psychologically accept losses. And at the same time, he's getting this reputation of always um, uh, of never having losses, and he's being showered with money. And rather than shut it down because it didn't fit his ability really to deal with, he, he, it just blew up and he couldn't get out of it. He saw himself as a yes man. I, I always have to be the one that's right. I have to deliver. So he couldn't admit and he couldn't get himself out of it. And that's kind of what happened. So that um, uh, he never did any trading. Not not. Yeah. People thought he was front running, which you'll know what that means. He's got a market maker, right? And the market maker gets an order for 500 IBM shares, uh, which is a bullish tick sign. So the market maker jumps in front of that because he knows right behind him it's going to go up slightly. And that's sure. how they thought he was avoiding losses. But the fact is, he never cheated in the market making business and he never yeah. screwed his customers and he didn't trade. Yeah. I mean, as you, Jim, as you say that, it's almost like he cheated so bad because he didn't want to cheat. <laughs> you know, it, it's like rather than front running or, or doing some of the other kind of more common nefarious yeah. acts that traders do, he's like, no, I'm not going to do something like that. So I'll just literally make the entire thing up. I got to say, psychologically, Diana Enriquez says a great thing. Bernie had a choice of I'm a liar or I'm a failure. Right. Or I'm not I can't really do what I say I'm doing. And he's because of that psyche I told you about. He chose liar. Yeah. Yeah. Hit the nail on the head. And so then bringing it back to today to FTX. Yep. And that's what my question was. So we know what Madoff did with the money, which is really kind of nothing other than in and out and then enjoy some along the way. Yeah. With Sam Bankman freed, was it the same exact story where he was having these huge uh, rounds of fundraising that were coming into FTX? And then he converted it to his coin, FTT. And then obviously, I know you alluded a little bit earlier to, you know, someone into real estate with his family, yeah. someone into a hedge fund, others, he was just enjoying buying yachts and everything else. Was he legitimately trying to do something to give a return to his investors? Um, and, you know, I don't have the, any evidence or his intent, right? Um, but he was making tons of investments, right, in other crypto entities. And that's why there's these hundred entities, right, that it's hard to get your arms around. So I just don't know all that money. And I went through all the buckets, right, at 400 in the hedge fund, 300 in real estate, 200 in these other investments I talked about, 73 million to politicians. Um, 
was he taking all this money that there was being thrown in and calling this all investment stuff that was part of FDX, which is what they'd invested in or LME? I don't know. I really don't know. It looks terrible. It doesn't smell good. Uh, it's a ton of money. And why is he, you know, buying homes for his family and stuff in Bermuda and 300 million in real estate? And where is, is he totally leveraged himself because he's got this FTT uh, coin? And, and I think, you know, and, and as we just said, Bernie didn't manipulate the market at all. No front running. That token had to stay constant. So something's going on in Alameda and in the platform where they're making sure that it's staying stable. And I think part of it was they were manipulating the supply. They were also driving down some of the other tokens by the way, you know, in other exchanges, the way they were playing around. Now, again, these are allegations by the SEC and the DOJ. So yeah. uh, he's he's pleaded innocent. So, um, uh, you know, he has to, he gets the benefit of that. Yeah, I know that's still kind of unfolding, you know, here. And so I know with, again, drawing these parallels, made off a lot of the people that were hurt, you said were in the Jewish community, that about 85% of his clientele uh, were Jewish. That's where he had kind of a, a big connection. It, I think with FTX, where you see a lot of kind of the glitz and glamours, there were a lot of celebrities that were involved. Yeah. He had Tom Brady, who was a spokesperson, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Steph Curry, um, the guy, I think it was Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank was, you know, a big time player. So any idea like what these people actually invested and lost, or were they just on the receiving end of being paid marketers? You know, I, I don't know the answer, but I would guess that a hundred percent they were bought. I mean, they, they were getting paid as celebrities to endorse something, right? Just by the way, like you do, if you're, you know, cool whip or something, you know, it's you're in an ad, you're just getting paid to endorse it. And again, he's buying legitimacy, buying celebrity politicians, CF to see people. And all of that is just, it looks kind of like the the whole Bernie approach. Um, I think if they made investments, they may have been given shares or something, right? So they may have had mm -hmm. investments in FTX, the platform, um, and yeah. uh, or maybe they put some of their own money, but they were getting paid millions of dollars. And as you know, they're being sued now. Brady's being sued. And yeah, he, no, I, I have he, seen I'm that. sure he didn't even know what was going on, you know? No, no, I most I'm sure most of these guys didn't know the difference between FTT and FTX or SBF. <laughs> you know, all these yeah, acronyms. Right. All of them. <laughs> yep. And then one of the things I just kind of want to conclude that with is when this all unfolded, again, this was kind of November, December of last year. People and meanwhile, throughout 2022, crypto was just getting rocked, it was getting crushed even before this happened. Yeah. Um, so people said, was this like the nail in the coffin? Is this the end of crypto? Just as we're saying that, you look at Bitcoin so far this year, we're literally one month in, it's up 39% year to date. Right. What's going on there? Was, is like something like Bitcoin disassociated with this? Or did people just move right past it and say, eh, that's it's a speed bump, nothing to worry about? I, I think, you know, see, fundamentally, a currency has to have a store of value, right? And this currency has no store of value, which means it's going to be very volatile, right? And it's a con game in the sense that you need confidence to keep it up, right? So if you see what it's done, it's gone up to like 80,000 and then it's gone down as you saw to whatever it got, went down to 10 or 15,000. I think that volatility is gonna, gonna continue because the generation younger than me, see, I couldn't understand why, why would you be doing this? There's no store of value. The dark web, right? 70% of the dark web is criminal transactions. Right. Whether it's terrorism, sex trade, um, uh, weapons, drugs. And uh, most of that 
transaction is by Bitcoin, right? So you've got something that's doing a lot of criminal activity, has no store of value and no regulatory oversight. Why the heck would you do this? And, I, and I'm, I'm understanding that that generation doesn't trust government, right? They like mm -hmm. this DeFi concept, this decentralized finance, right? So these guys are committed to it. And I think that they will hold um, tokens, currency, Bitcoin, regardless. And um, they're not going to panic as much. And they'll try and, and, you know, bet the curves and things like that, like, like everybody does. And that's why it hasn't, I think, collapsed completely. Because you and I wouldn't go near it, right? But yeah. these guys um, you know, will do. Now, let's <laughs> say the other part that I think is very is good, is viable, and that's the blockchain technology, right? which the infrastructure for doing transactions uh, can be managed, not as a currency now, but as a transaction vehicle. And that can do things like break the Visa monopoly. Visa has a monopoly, um, American Express on all those you know, credit card transactions, right? And, they, and they're able to charge then a nice chunk. And blockchain can do all this for basically a fraction of the cost, right? As well as not be controlled by the banks. So for blockchain technology, I think there's a legitimate usage. I don't think it should be used for a currency, at least at this time. Yeah. And now, did did crypto kind of put blockchain on the map? Because I think a lot of people confuse the two, and it seems like they kind of came to the forefront well, together. Blockchain, blockchain is really the underlying technology because the um, the transactions have to go through this ledger, right? This which is a blockchain uh, ledger. So it it and that's where the um, security is made right because these to these through the mining these tokens there's a limited number and they're exclusive and you can really protect everything blockchain is what it runs through right mm -hmm. but bitcoin um is what it's actually what's used as the transaction vehicle or the various types of bitcoin right there's all tons of different tokens so yep. they're not real they're not one and the same but they're the same concept or out of the same construct if you will Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's very interesting. It's also very confusing, and yeah. uh, you know, just dealing with with millennials and and seeing you know the people that are in college and graduating right now, and the fascination with crypto. I know you alluded to the decentralization, um, the lack of faith in government and, and right. these regulatory bodies. I think the other thing too that's just a persistent draw is that wanting to be kind of on the forefront of what if yeah. I was an early investor in Apple or what if I bought Amazon before anyone even knew what it was? And I think a lot of people, they find that seductive of like, hey, I could get into this coin that my mom or dad doesn't even know what I'm saying. And in the future, it'll be the US dollar. And yeah. I think and that's know, if something- there is a store, If someday, if there's a real store of value and it's not just used for facilitating criminal enterprise, you could see how it might- you know, threaten the dollar at some point or, you know, become become legitimate. It's just it's not there now. And and, yeah. and it, it shouldn't be. It, there needs to be some regulation and there needs to be some. What is the value of it? Now, we all know that the dollar is only a fiat currency. The only thing behind the dollar is the full faith and obligation of the U.S. government, which right now is enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's something else. And it's um, I think. You know, people, they, they, it's a combination of hubris and, and just kind of thinking you got to figure it out when maybe sometimes you don't. And, um, just kind of that hope of, of what it could someday be and just looking at the, you know, the possibility of it all. What these, what, what this also is, is Bernie was too good to be true, right? And, yep. It's unbelievable the number of people that want to believe that. 
And there's magical thinking going on with this Bitcoin stuff. And people want to believe it, even if they tell you it makes no sense or it can't be done. Bernie's Bernie's results were not possible, not plausible. And people want to believe it. That is I, I, I almost want to restate that because I think that's just a constant in, in finance and even sometimes in life is like, like you said, you want to believe. I, I remember reading in a book, it was um, I think it's called the laws of power. It's, it's the one that's got like the 300 or 50 laws of power or something like that. And that's one of the ones they point to is people are almost willing to go along with the scam because they almost want to be a part of that. And, and it, as you watch that documentary, that's what I kept coming back to is it's like each little story that they highlight it's like, how did you do this? But it's yeah. almost like the people are like, well, I, I kind of felt it. I kind of saw it, but I didn't want it to stop. I just wanted to to stay in the game. That's part it's, of the value of what your book is about, right? Is to is to help people navigate this stuff rationally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things I talk about, not to kind of give away too much secret sauce, but I always talk about the mice, which is money, ideology, compromise, and ego, and how these four things can just kind of govern decision making that sometimes makes sense and other times it doesn't um but anything jim that that you want to kind of leave us off with here in this part two because we said you know just a few months ago how could this ever happen again and then almost like we're just calling the future bang it happens again what do people need to know i guess maybe what's one huge takeaway you know when i was coming to the end of my book trying to get you know rec conclusions and you know help people out a little bit I, I stole from that medical profession, the Hippocratic Oath, right, which means do no harm. And I tell individuals, you know, your first thing is do no harm and don't invest in stuff you don't understand. Don't in stuff that, that your Uber driver recommends, or in this case, it was the Jewish community not knowing what he was even doing, uh, not understanding it. Don't invest in stuff where there's a, a, a guaranteed rate of return, which all these Ponzi schemes are, even though by definition of market facing uh, instrument cannot have guaranteed returns. Don't assume that the government is going to find it and bail you out. Um, so, you know, if you want to do Bitcoin right, use that as the piece of your money that's, that you can just gamble with at Vegas and throw it away. Don't build, um, you know, your pyramid of money um, with risk like that at the top. And, and as I always say at the end of my, my talks, um, um, Buffett always says, you know, the, um, the market, you know, going to a low cost index fund. Well, it turns out the market's still 9% compounded for 100 years. The end, Bernie was offering these folks 11%. I say, take the 9% and sleep. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's just crazy, crazy things to talk about. And it's crazy what people do for that extra 2%. Is, it is. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, our human nature, I guess. But Jim, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Um, this was awesome. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. I know we covered a lot today, taking in kind of history versus the present day with Madoff versus FTX. Uh, and if it was too much for you or you kind of have some questions here, I promise if you go back and you read Jim's book, uh, Madoff Talks, or if you watch the Netflix documentary, Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street, it's all going to start to make sense what we've been discussing here. So uh, thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time.
This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.